What's up, everyone? This is an all-new episode of Unbuckled Chinstrap. It's a weekly show featuring the best players in the world, and today's guest is considered by many to be just that, Tom Schreiber. Tom and I go way back, back into when he was playing at Princeton, and we met virtually over Twitter. He used to use my equipment, so I've got that on him. Uh, and then... <laughs> And then we played for Team USA together in the 2018 World Games. We discussed both of those moments. And then everything in between, which includes the two of us working on the PLL since 2017. It's a really, really great show. Not only is Tom a cerebral assassin in the sport, he's artful, he's skillful, he thinks about the game from all different types of angles. His dad was a legend and National Lacrosse Hall of Famer. He grew up, basically, he was a kid who grew up with a stick in his hands at all times. Talks about developing his left hand by the time he was in third or fourth grade. I didn't even know what lacrosse was then. But it's a really great conversation. It's our longest show we've ever had. Tom and I went about an hour and a half. We probably could have gone four. So I'm going to have Tom again back on the show. Maybe he'll take over the show one day. But I love Tom Schreiber. I think a lot of people share that sentiment. And, and to that earlier call out, considered by many, and there's a lot the best player in the world. But there's also others who don't feel that way. You know what I'm talking about, Tom? I kind of trip him into talking shit about other teams, but he wouldn't bite. He's uh, the consummate professional. Anyway, let's take it away, Tom. You're actually going shirtless, huh? I, I thought I'd start this thing without a shirt just to show the world my hairy chest. You got a lot of this hair, hairy chest during uh, the World Games. I, I did. Um... I didn't mind it, and I don't mind it now. <laughs> I'm actually planning to put a shirt on because I, I don't want to distract us, but I do want to ask about your beard. Have you not shaved since the beginning of quarantine? No, I've, like, trimmed it up. This is definitely the longest I've had a beard for um, in my life. And my dad has a goatee right now, which he, like, oh. battled through an awkward stage for a bit, but yeah. it now looks pretty good, so... I'm going to keep the beard going until it's like too out of control. I think it's okay for now. Where, where, how awesome. is your, does your beard grow long or is it going to like bushel out? It's going to bushel out and, and it happens unless I'm like constantly kind of pushing it down. I'm new to this. So can I don't get, Can we get a bushel out right now? Let me just check it out. Like no. What kind of, yeah, I'm going to show no, because, you mine. Because, well, your, yours comes back. I'm new. No, it doesn't. I can't me. bring mine back. Tom, you can bring yours back. Let's just see it. You have to do it. Come I, it on. No. Otherwise, this whole thing's going to go south. It's staying. No, no, you're, 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 you're petting down. Let's see it bushel I know. out. You're too put together. To Everyone's like, Tom's too put together. You know? Who said that? When's he going to let his hair down? Who said that? Everyone on Twitter. <laughs> Was it Alan? Alan <laughs> took a swipe at me earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, to be fair, you guys were kicking our ass in that game you referenced. I think that was – I mean, I don't. we didn't really beat Ohio very much when we were playing you guys. Did we beat you? I guess we, I beat you when yeah, I was in no, Boston. You, you guys did when Joe Lacasio hit that two bomb at the end of the game. Oh, that's right. I, it, that wasn't the same day. Um, that, was a, that was a good spot feed. Who gave him that spot feed? That was you, wasn't it? You're goddamn right. You're goddamn right. <laughs> Where's your Heisenberg hat? You should put that on. Oh man! So we had a uh, we had our our weekly company wide meeting, and Mike shot an email out 
late last night to everyone to, to wear their favorite hat because we're all trying to figure out ways to stay creative and excited for uh, daily meetings. And I decided to wear a Gorin Bros hat, of which Tom is referencing. And that was the same company that did the Heisenberg hat as well as the Boardwalk Empire hats. And uh, from what I've gathered, you're, you're a fan of both shows. I am, yeah. I, I told you I was going to wear the same hat this morning because I have this no, you weren't. Gordon Brothers hat. Yeah. <laughs> Were you really? I'm, yeah, I have a huge Gordon Brothers collection at home of all their hats. <laughs> no, I know you're full of shit because it's not Gordon Brothers, it's Gorin. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> Talk to B-Rob. <laughs> this connection stinks. <laughs> There's a microphone problem. <laughs> uh, did but did you really watch Boardwalk? Because I think it's low key one of the best shows. Uh, I haven't watched it in full, but like I've, I've watched a little bit of it, and I've really liked it. I think yeah. Steve Buscemi is awesome in, in everything. He's, he's awesome. What kind of shows are you watching right now? Are you keeping yourself entertained? Uh, so I think like everyone kind of goes through like different waves during the quarantine. Like at first, like everybody was just like, let me just watch a million shows. Um, which like, I, I guess I, I kind of did. Like I went through the Tiger King thing early. Um, and then we've been watching Sopranos at night. So I've just, we've, we've kind of just said like, I don't put on any Netflix or anything like that until after 9 PM. And we've just been doing an episode a night and that's it. Is this your first run at Sopranos? Oh no, no. I've, oh, I've probably- I was going to say. I've probably seen it three or four times, but I'm like, uh, I love rewatching shows and just like finding some of like the little Easter eggs and all that stuff. And, um, like you just pick like show, like show, like series like that, like an HBO series, like you just find so much more every time you watch it, or at least I do. Um, Damn. so like the wires like that for me, Sopranos is like that breaking bad even. Um, but yeah, I, I love TV shows. I watch a ton of them, but we're doing Sopranos right now. Gosh, uh, there's uh, as for as long as I can remember uh, watching you play back at Princeton, and then going back and forth. I was in the pros at the time, going back and uh, over social, because um, I think because I, I don't actually, I don't know. We'll have to you'll have to tell me, but I think you were using or your or your teammates were making fun of you for using one of my old heads, and I remember being obsessed with you just because of that. I hadn't even seen you play yet, and then when I saw you play, I was like, holy fuck, this guy's really good. Um, but of all the similarities that I think we have competitively, same position, you know, obsession around the sport, we have these like very contrasting nuances. Like I hate to rewatch shows, no matter <laughs> how good they are. I just hate it. I get like obsessed with my time wasting and I'm like, well, I know what's going to happen. I need to move on. So it's one of them, I guess. I suppose. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm going to double, I'm, I'm going to double down on it. Like, I think there, there's just like, when you've rewatched something, you know, like the wire in particular, like I talk about the wire all the time. Um, but it's, it's just like, there are so many like little points of foreshadowing that you could only appreciate after you've seen it once or twice. Um, sure. and then, you know, I, again, like this is pretty specific to the wire because I love it and I'm obsessed with it, but I've learned more about like the world from that show, you know, than really anything else. So, um, there's just a million little metaphors and, and like ways the world operates and how different institutions kind of pull on one another and you appreciate it more after race, class, business, politics, 
they they cover yeah. it. They cover it well, and it's great acting. Do you watch a lot of film too? Uh, yeah, I I I I haven't seen like a ton of classic movies or anything. Um, no, I'm no, definitely no. More of a Let TV me rephrase cover. that. Lacrosse film. Do you watch a lot of oh. game film? So probably like yourself um, more now than I did um, back in the day. Like in college, I couldn't stand it. Like I, I yeah. just wasn't into it. Um, it didn't really make as much sense. But now I, a ton, yeah. I, I get I get a lot from it, and and I'm more of like a uh, like I'll watch a little bit of the other team, um, but I'm more of like a review our own team. Um, you know the things that we've done, things we could do a little better, and then. Um, more in like a group setting, I'll watch like the other team where other guys are pointing different things out. But when I watch, I'm kind of looking at body language and which guys like cheat on slides and which guys you know, are quicker to go versus not, things like that. So so you're watching the other team's defense to try to get an edge? Yeah. Yeah. So the other team's defense and more, you know, like mannerisms than anything. Like, you know, how guys hold their sticks. Like if a two slide, if somebody is – not great at getting their stick in the lane or if somebody likes to cheat or if there's a short stick that tries to get up the field, like in box, I'm sure you saw a ton of that in your career. Yeah. I'm sure you did a ton of it. I'm sure like anticipating a shot and breaking up the field, up the floor and box in the field in, in our game, um, mm -hmm. you know, and being aware of guys like that and seeing where you could kind of catch guys cheating. Um, have you been watching really the Jordan doc? I have, uh, I haven't seen the latest ones, but yeah, I have oh, just like the rest of the world. It's been, Unreal. Is, I was gonna, I was gonna say, and, and I'm not gonna spoil anything, but Jordan makes a comment around watching film on Brian uh, Russell, the mm -hmm. the guard who covered him for the Jazz for the last like you know three to four years of Jordan's career in Chicago, and he his comment wasn't like anything around how we're used to scouting players. Uh, it was like his weight are, is on the balls of his of his feet, and therefore he's more off balance when I attack his. Uh, top foot and I can kind of give him the fadeaway shimmy and it was like that was a level of detail kind of mannerism I think you're talking about I think so to an extent um yeah and, and it's not something specific I'm really looking for I just kind of try to evaluate your know, body language really is is the big one and then you know knowing the guys that I play with now you know how little space they need to release the ball like Marcus and Will um and you've played with with both and you yeah. know that they don't need a lot of space. They're super opportunistic. So if there are ways we can find like small opportunities through kind of taking their skill set, you know, and taking advantage of like a lazy defensive play off ball, then, you know, I think those are little things you can probably pick up from film that I don't know, wouldn't be super obvious. When you, uh, when you think about or watch film uh, about your play and the passes that you make to Manny and Holman, um, there are so many of them. It comes in volume. That does is that one of the first things that kind of registers through your head before and after a dodge is like, okay, if I get a half a half an inch um, of of vision or availability that I can see those guys, I'm going to let it go to them. Even before you think about shooting, I, I would say that more times than not, unless I'm seeing something like really obvious, like as I'm kind of approaching a defender, I, I'm trying to score. Um, but I'm, you know, just constantly trying to evaluate, you know, really because like, I, I just, again, know how quickly those guys can get the ball out. And, you know, in my training, and really this has been 
over the last few years, if I can, it's the reason why I throw the ball so odd, you know, and, and like guys make fun of me for it. But if I could get the ball to somebody quickly without having to get my hands back and really just kind of jam it there with like a, you know, a trunk rotation and using my wrist um, really in the middle of a dodge, then, you know, I'm going to try to do that. So long-winded way of saying that I'm, I'm always trying to go to the goal, but if I see someone open, I want to be able to make the pass at a split second. And it's something that I I'm pretty intentional about training, you know, when I'm by myself and um, playing with those guys and, you know, some of the, you know, Ben McIntosh this last year, guys like that, that are constantly moving and don't need a lot of space to operate off ball. Um, There's kind of a, you know, a, a pretty good pairing for me. So it's something that I've tried to work on and trying to, you know, going back to our original, you know, I guess topic with the film is seeing if I could pick that up and if I could get the ball out of my stick quickly to guys who don't need a ton of space to shoot the ball, then I'm going to try to do it. Um, how do but you, I am trying how to do you, score. How do you practice that on your own then? If, if uh, you know, assuming you don't have like electronic dummies that are moving around the field uh, in, in whatever backyard or, or park that you're playing in, is it more practicing getting the ball off your hip when you're having a catch against the wall or are you just doing the mental reps as you dodge on a, on an empty net by yourself? So I think <clears throat> with the wall, and I say this to kids pretty often, like if you can throw the ball to somebody, that's always better than throwing the ball against the wall. But, um, you know, you're not really evaluating anything, but you're worried about speed in, in my opinion. So the rate at which you can kind of catch the ball and get it out of your stick. So I work on catching it, switching my hands, getting it out as quickly as I possibly can, uh, throwing the ball faster than you would need to, you know, in practice, I think is something else that I try to do. So, um, getting it in and out of your stick quickly and throwing the ball hard and being really intentional around where you're putting that ball is what you can work on kind of on your own. And then, um, in terms of like reading the defense, I've just, in other sports, like I, I didn't play high school basketball, but I played a ton of pickup basketball and uh, was a point guard, was always a distributor there. And then in football, we ran a triple option. So there, there was a pre-snap read where you're counting the defense on both sides. You're determining you know, through what is kind of an audible, like it's a check with me. So you're determining which way you're going based on the numbers defense pre-snap. Once the ball snaps, you're reading the tackle, uh, the defensive tackle, and then you're either pulling or taking the ball, uh, pulling or giving the ball, and then you're reading an end um, all in like a three-second time frame. So I've just had a million reps of doing that. And then when we weren't running the option, we were throwing the ball. So that's, again, just reading defense. So I've just had a lot of mental reps of reading defenses and, and being able to, to throw the ball in, in tight spaces, whether that's a football, a basketball, or, you know, in our case now, a lacrosse ball. Do you also pick up tips and skills from watching pro players in other sports? And I'll give you an example. I watched a ton of Steve Nash and a lot of Chris Paul as I developed my ability to pass, especially early on in my pro career. And I referenced them being able to get the ball and even Rajon Rondo accurately to their teammate off a dribble in their weak hand from their hip versus, you know, that, that fraction of a difference, another point guard having to load the pass to get it out. Um, that was an example of me taking something away from other sports. Are there other athletes and stuff that you watch that distribute the ball really well? A hundred percent. I think basketball is the easiest um, to look to. And that's one that, you know, especially with, with the bulls doc, 
coming out, um, you kind of you're kind of reminded of that era and kind of look at some of those old highlights. So uh, Steve Nash is a big one, you know, like just hit the, so many different ways he can move the ball. Um, Chris Paul is another. I think the big ones for me um, are, are Magic Johnson um, and then Jason Williams. So just, you know, his creativity, how he's releasing the ball. Like, I don't think there's like an elbow pass equivalent in lacrosse, but, you know, what he's able to do around the back, his no look stuff, the different angles he's releasing it. So, I mean, I think there's a ton to, as a distributor in lacrosse, like point guard, I think is, is the one that you would look at. My dad, um, when I was growing up would, you know, it, it was annoying at the time, you know, like we would just be trying to watch like some sort of sporting event, but he would use everything as a teaching moment. We would be watching an NBA game, an NFL game, whatever it is, college football. Um, and he would kind of constantly point out different movements and how I can you know, apply that to lacrosse. Um, and even before that, you know, back when I guess magazines were really um, a big thing, you know, he would, he would cut out, you know, like just the look in guys' eyes and like what they're, you know, just kind of the intensity that they play with and the focus that they play with. And, um, I can't tell you how many random clippings he probably still has at the house of people just kind of having like a really focused look on their face. Um, so to your original question, yeah, I think there's a ton you could take from other sports and apply it to lacrosse for sure. And you, and you probably got a lot from Doug. He, he, he pushed you hard though. You've told me that before. Um, so obviously like there was the mental reps, there were the, the teaching moments that you reference, but I mean, he's had uh, he's a Hall of Famer, so he's had uh, as good a career as anyone in lacrosse, having played uh, a while back. But um, it, you've told me he's he got you into the sport really, really early. Was it was it was it always lacrosse for you? And and how far back can you remember playing for the first time? It was always lacrosse first but you know I, I played everything like my dad was super in my, my mom which is, is a less told story I guess it was a phenomenal athlete was uh, I think a four sport athlete in, in high school and um, you know in, in Levittown where actually a lot of people from in the lacrosse world are from Levittown Division High School um, you know played varsity in like four different sports even though there's three seasons I don't even know that story but is, is a fantastic athlete. So we've always been uh, like a pretty um, sports oriented family. Um, but lacrosse always had like kind of a special place within that, this sports world. So um, it, it was always my first sport. And I do remember just like it always being around. Um, I didn't play on a team until third grade, which I think was pretty standard um, for someone growing up on Long Island at the time. So it wasn't like crazy young or anything, but I was just around the game a ton. My dad coached, my uncle refed. So I was just, I went to a million lacrosse games and I was always like the little kid just following my pops around, um, whether he was coaching or we were you know, watching a game at Hofstra or something like that. Do you uh, remember or recall just being better at an earlier age because you had that level of instruction and, and frankly, like, you know, if, if you look at our sport, similar to where soccer trajected 20 years ago, uh, a lot of the uphill battle for a game that's growing faster than its coaches is the access to instruction, especially in, an, in a technical sport. And that's the number one reason why participants fall out. And it's something that overseas in Europe, you take 
uh, countries like Holland and 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 Spain, and they actually designate some of the the brightest minds to coach the U11s and U9s, so they can develop quicker. Was there a moment for you where, as you started entering your teens, or even perhaps earlier, where you were like, "I'm I'm really good at this sport relative to my age group." Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> on that that first game, like I, my dad had me ready to roll, <laughs> you know, like in third grade, like I, I, you know, I like, I, I, I was way ahead of the curve at an early You had a bunch of goals. Me. How many goals did you have in your first game? I, I had like six or seven in the first quarter. Like I, I was, my dad, but like I, I was ready, <laughs> you know, like all I, of them. I had all of them, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, <laughs> but it kind of, it forced me to, um, you know, like kind of, develop my game early, you know, and I think like I've always been pretty two handed and and I wasn't in third grade and like defenses would just force you the other way. And the team, you know, the parents on the other team would just say, Oh, he has no left. Um, you know, and that, you know, a couple of weeks later, like I had a left hand, my dad built a plywood wall in our basement and I was down there for hours on end until I had a left hand and then I could play righty and lefty. And then, teams would slide really early and then I learned how to feed. Um, but to your point, you know, I, I just had like a, a lacrosse savant you know, living in my house. Um, and I was, especially at a young age, super into it. And, and what, you know, I think the interesting thing about growing up on Long Island um, it is, you know, lacrosse is, is really, in my opinion, I guess some people would dispute it, but it's, you know, the number one sport on Long Island. Like you get, you know, a lot of the top athletes play lacrosse, whereas that's not always the case um, across the country. So uh, I just was around the game a lot. I had a million role models. Um, Hofstra was right in my backyard, really. So I went to a ton of college games. I went to a ton of pro games. I went to Saints games when they were at the Coliseum and would always get to like go and meet, you know, guys in in MLL, guys playing for the Saints. Um, so I just like was around it a lot and I couldn't get enough of it. And I was always eager to do other things. And I, I had, you know, this kind of mastermind who, in my opinion, could have coached anywhere in the country. And he was coaching me and, and my yeah. like PAL team in third grade. So, so how quickly were you able to pick up a left hand? Did that happen like in third grade or fourth grade? And then part two to that question is, when did you actually begin to feel like wholly confident and comfortable with it? I'd say, um, I don't remember if it was that first season. It, it was, you know, before sixth grade. And it was, it was from the moment I remember like this guy yelling that I had no left hand and like being frustrated because of it knowing he was right. <laughs> um, you know, we, my dad literally built this plywood wall, um, in our basement and, um, it, it was like a few weeks. I, I was down there for hours and hours. Um, and we had spray paint where I'd make these targets, um, on this wall in our basement. I'm sure it drove my family crazy cause it was loud as hell, <laughs> like yeah. a complete pain. But, um, I, I'd say it was probably, a month or so until I was like relatively comfortable. And then, you know, probably pretty equal later on, like not until like eighth grade, probably. Um, but, but it's always something like a a lot of people and myself included, like, you know, I could, I could, I got to a place where I could shoot the ball over a hundred miles an hour with my left hand, but you still prefer your right. And I think that, um, the, 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 the feeling about Tom Schreiber is that, 
you, you're like probably as close to ambidextrous as there is, and the preference doesn't matter. Like I actually prefer to shoot lefty down the alley, but everything else, like top center on the power play, time and room, I just feel more comfortable catching on a cut righty. So what I mean confident, I don't mean like, hey, I can get the skill done and I got it down and I can go play and if a team forces me left, I'm going to bury. I'm talking about, and, and maybe you aren't there, but are, are, do you feel like you are currently? And if so, when did that begin at a place where it like doesn't fucking matter where, where my stick is? <clears throat> um, no, so I, I don't think like I'm, I'm done with that. Like, you know, if I were to really break it down, like my – like I couldn't play box across lefty. Like I don't have the hands to do it. You know, I couldn't, I can't make like a, a, a short, like little touch feed left-handed. Um, and, and I, I also like shooting lefty on the run more than I do uh, righty on the run time and room. I'm more comfortable right-handed, but um, I don't have like the inside hands lefty that I would like to. It's something that I'm trying to work on. Um, you know, I can kind of sling it across my body cause I've worked on it for so long, but, um, and it's similar to shooting. But there are things that, you know, there are certainly like deficiencies in it um, that I just try to avoid when I'm out yeah. on the field. Well, you don't you don't show it. Um, one. And then two is, do you actually think is, is it time well spent? And, and this is I, I kind of go through this as the game has evolved and our backhands have gotten so much better and kind of spatial awareness and understanding, um, you know, the systems that are in place at the pro level positionally where you're most valuable and then energy spent in certain areas of practice. Like, do you think that developing a left hand for your indoor game when, you know, if you look at it, you ain't going to be put on the left side unless there's three injuries in a game. So you might as well keep developing your right hand. Like, how do you think about that? So I want to be careful because I, I'm like, you know, you coach a little careful. bit now. Um, but, but no, I mean, I think, I think you, you don't need two hands. Um, if you look at like kind of the box lacrosse influence on the game, the last 10, 15 years, whatever you would call it, you know, some of the, some of the greatest players of all time, you know, don't have a great offhand, um, you know, and they're able to play the game in a certain, a certain way where they don't need it. So I think, especially if you play attack, you know, if you're an ex attackman, it'll probably help you to be able to feed and shoot and turn the corner with both hands. But like if you're a wing shooter or something like that, like you might as well spend your time on, on being a great wing shooter with your right hand and, and being able right. to be crafty and get underneath um, and, and have the stick in one hand and use your body to, to get to the goal. So I think it would depend on, you know, what position you play and, and how you want to play it. But, you know, you certainly don't need two hands to be, to, to be a good lacrosse player let alone great um i think a midfielder probably helps yeah it definitely helps and, and i'll add that <clears throat> i think what what, what we're, we're also dealing right now is is at the pro level so you know the the the, the handful of guys that, that make it at the next level and then sustain at the next level is you have to ad adapt but you're asked to adapt on a baseline of having pretty much every skill so will manny who was on the show uh, a few weeks ago, right? He was a Dodger and what didn't consider himself as a Tourton finalist at UMass, an off-ball player. And then he talked about how when he came to the Cannons, he's like, "Fuck, I got Paul and Ryan Boyle, and I'm gonna, you know, try to make a run at starting my rookie year with a talented roster." And he did, and now he's become, arguably by many, the best off-ball player in the world. And that wasn't 
where he was dubbed a Tourton finalist. So I think I think where we're also dealing for young kids that are listening is like, hey, uh, don't turn off the the engine on developing a weak hand or things like that now. Like build as much skill as possible, and then you'll be asked to specialize as you get better. I'll, I'll also say Joel Tinney when we when uh, we shoot different wall ball exercises to each other in our group chat. You have uh, you know RH and LH for right hand, left hand, and he always says reverse handed because he doesn't put the ball in his, <laughs> in his right hand when he practices. So we'll go, hey Crawley, I assume RH means reverse handed. And Crawley, you know, he's he's typically sharing all the material. Um, anyway, so so back to uh, back to your your third grade domination, and then your sixth grade domination. Um, you went to St. Anthony's, you played with Will, you played with Channy, you played with Jolo, that team was dominant. Why did you, uh, why did you decide to go to Princeton? Um, a, a number of reasons. So <clears throat> I knew I wanted to overachieve academically. Um, you know, when I started to kind of narrow that list down of, of you know, my opportunities or whatever, like that was kind of at the forefront. And at the end of the day, um, and I've, I've kind of said this before is I really wanted to win a national championship. Like I, I've been a, a lax rat my whole life. Like, you know, you mentioned like the, taking the picture with the, the Rabel head in college. Like that's why those guys like busted my chops about it because I was like, yeah, I'm getting the Rabel head. Like that was, my, that was my guy. Like I used a black head in high school. Cause like you had it in the final four, like, um, so I've always, you know, kind of been that guy. So I, I, I did want to go to a great school, but I was really, really focused on being, um, you know, in contention for a national championship. And at the time, um, when I was being recruited, Princeton had just brought in the, the number one recruiting class in the country. Um, <clears throat> and my teammate in, in high school, Mike Chaninchuk, was part of that class. So, you know, I think Chani was um, a top 10 recruit. And I think we probably had three or four other guys, you know, within the top 10. So that class was loaded. It was like Chad Weedmeyer, John Cunningham, Jonathan Myers, Tyler Fiorito, Chani. Um, you know, the entire class was loaded. They had Jack and Chris McBride already there. Um, coach Tierney w- was the coach. So I committed to, to Bill Tierney, who, you know, then went over to Denver. Um, so at the time, you know, when I was kind of making that decision, you know, best, best chance of winning a national championship, best academic experience an hour and a half from my house, just far enough, but also close enough to home. You know, it made perfect sense to me. And that was, hmm. you know, we never came close, but there wasn't a second, you know, even until our very last game, you know, we didn't even make the NCAA tournament, but going into our very last game, we had a chance to an outside chance. You know, I never thought that that, that like those goals never changed. And um, as you can imagine, you know, that, that, that at times was really difficult. Um, yeah. not, not even sniffing it. Um, you know, I played in one playoff game in, in my whole career and we lost it at, at UVA. Um, but at the end of the day, that was, that was why, that's why I went there. It, it was going to be our best chance. You know, it was going to be my best chance to compete. We're going to take a quick break in the action with Tom. I don't know why I say action. It's such an advertising read. We're going to take a quick break to recognize the show's title sponsor and our league's title sponsor, Ticketmaster. Amidst these challenging times, which we all know, 
and we're all still living in and trying to figure out. Ticketmaster was built on selling tickets, yet they continue to support their partners through media and marketing, and one of their major partners is the Premier Lacrosse League. So I ask that each of you who are listening to Tom Schreiber today, consider going into your phone and downloading the Ticketmaster app. There is a ton of good news and information on your favorite sports teams, on leagues in general, and the trail back to fan attendance into sports. I have it on my home screen. I ask that you guys do the same thing. Thanks again, Ticketmaster. This is the Premier Lacrosse League powered by Ticketmaster, and we're going to go back to talking to Mr. Tom Schreiber. So you were uh, a two-time midfielder of the year, multi-time All-American, two-time tour-time finalist. What do, how would you process... And then how would uh, your dad and mom help you process being the best player but only playing in one playoff game? Uh, so I, I would say that I didn't consider myself the best guy. Um, you know, I played like in, in – like there was a lot of studs like throughout my career um, in college. Like Pinnell was breaking records. Lyle Thompson was breaking records. Like there were just um, – like, and, and that was really the first time like the – you know, guys were like going like bananas with stats and like really being off the charts that I can remember. Like Matt well, Danowski and Zach Greer. Yeah, there was like, the Matt Danowski Greer. Right. Run, and then um, there, was a there was a big dip in between. Right. Right. And then those guys. So like, I, I really never um, thought about it in, in that light. Like I, I always, you know, I was frustrated with that. Not really so much like, oh, people aren't going to think I'm like for real for not playing in the playoffs, but more so just like, this is what I want. Like, I think we have all the pieces to do it and I, I want to be there so bad. And like, again, like coming from a kid who like grew up on Long Island, has been around lacrosse forever, had a million idols within lacrosse. And, you know, until I you know got to high school, I, you know, I, I looked at, you know, pro lacrosse players on the same level as an NFL or an NBA player. Like that's what it meant to me. And then, you know, I started to realize the differences, but I didn't lose that respect. Um, yeah. and I didn't lose that, you know, kind of goal and that path forward. So it was difficult. Um, you know, and, and, but where I've kind of landed with it and, and I started to appreciate, you know, the opportunity I had to go attend school there and be around the people I was around on the team and off, um, you know, that's kind of at the end of the day, what I point back to and I'm like, man, what more could I, could I have asked for? Like, I, I just had such like a fulfilling experience at the end of the day, but, um, you know, it, it just goes back to like the whole process versus product thing. Um, like, yeah, like it would have been unbelievable to win a national championship. Like if, if I could go back and win one, like I would do anything to make it happen. But in terms of the journey to get there, even though you know, we didn't, um, you know, that journey is, you know, what I, I point back to that a lot, you know, in terms of like how I carry myself now and, you know, how I live my life. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I asked uh, that question, obviously very sensitively, but knowing that since then you've won a pro championship, won a world championship. Um, and there are a lot of players that have been at the top of their respective sports that have never won a championship. And I'm sure there are more championships to come for you. Um, and so it, it's not a matter of that. It's just a matter of what I was curious around is how you how you internalize uh, defeat. And and I, I it's something that I struggle with and talked about a lot. 
um, and my question, my kind of like inner voice begins to start saying, what did you do wrong? You could have done this differently. And it's almost, it's like an egotistical thing where I, when I was younger, I would process it that way. Like I should have been better there where in reality, like it's very much a team sport because of the fluidity of it. Um, and then, uh, different than basketball where, uh, the game isn't played for by you know for all 48 minutes by the same guys on the floor playing both ends. There's just a lot out of our control that we have to be at peace with, um, and I imagine that 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 was the case in in some circumstances while you're at Princeton, and certainly in other cases while you've uh, been in the pros. Um, I do remember sitting down with Matt Madelon. Was he the head coach your senior year? No, so he was he was the assistant. So I had coached Bates all four years. So, so you committed to Bill Tierney. He left to Denver. Coach Bates came in. You decided to stay. Were you given yep. a chance to potentially change your mind? Um, so, so the way like the Ivies work, you know, it, it's pretty loose up until the very end. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the position was vacant for a bit. So, I, I was in limbo. You know, and, and Coach Tierney certainly played a role in why I chose Princeton, but. Yeah, I, I was very much still a believer in you know, this was going to be my best chance um, to go to a, the national championship. And then it, it's also like the pedigree of that degree isn't going anywhere. And um, I didn't know Coach Bates at all. Um, you know, he came and met with with me and my family and stayed for you know, three or four hours and fought Long Island traffic from from wherever he was for who knows how long. And um you know, we loved him and, and, you know, I never really wavered, but like after that visit, it was like, yeah, for sure. Like I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in. So, so now obviously you're playing with Bates again, which is, which is really a uh, full circle. But I remember yep. sitting down with Matt Madelon while he was in Baltimore and we were having a beer and he was, and when I was, I was asking about you and uh, it was, it was probably your senior year. And he, we were, and then we started talking about X's and O's, and we were talking actually about like Barcelona football and and the way that they kind of their system moves. And uh, he had made a comment about you. He had said, "Tom is too skilled for the college game." And I remember thinking, "Hmm," because because Mads had professional experience, and he was like, he he passes the ball too fast, and he sees the plays evolving quicker than they actually do he's gonna fucking kill it in the pro game um and i knew what he was talking about because we uh, all athlete like really high level athletes uh, part of being in the zone um is that the the, you, the game slows down um and then as i think back at the college game and the more distance i get from it and see that it is slower and um kind of more structured which creates less fluidity is uh, and then obviously the way you've panned out is that he was uh, he was he had, it was a, it was a lot of uh, insight there. I don't know if he's ever shared that with you. No, I I had no idea. Um, <clears throat> that's cool that that Coach Mads had said that. I, I I've you know been pretty close with him over the the last few years, and um, no, it's that's cool to hear him say it. I I also think just kind of my skill set lends itself nicely to the, to a shot clock. Um, just cause it, like, I, I'm, you know, a bit, uh, I guess of a risk taker, like, uh, you know, some of the play, like the, my style of play, I guess, isn't the safest. Um, right. so I think, you know, having a shot clock is, is probably to my advantage and, and something that, you know, I, I definitely needed to adjust like for the world games and, and we ran midfield together on, on that team. And, you know, you know, like 
it, it's a different it's a different game totally, totally different, different um no shot clock really slow you need to really value the ball and um like i understand the concept <laughs> you know but like my i'm i'm best when like the ball doesn't need to be valued that much. <laughs> it's frustrating and can feel inane. I remember late nights having conversations with you about like, well, in theory, if we push the ball and we're successful, they're going Canada. They are going to have to, uh, you know, respond with that same type of pace. Um, but the like I've also said before, the the um, the stress for that championship game, it's it's as close to an Olympic as possible and it's a world championship and that you have four years of buildup and it all culminates in an 80 minute game where just the, the turnovers are, are that much more, um, uh, seminal to the game's outcome. And so you end up, you can, you can have this game plan that you're going to run, but, um, once you get in there, it's like, all right, and you value it. And, and it's kind of, it's an interesting beast and it's the way the game has evolved. But I, I suspect a shot clock in the, World Championships will open that thing back up. But the way it is right now, I don't know if you've spent much time in post-mortem thinking about any other way or a way that we could pull it out of that slow-paced final. But I, I just, having played in three of them, I, I, don't, I don't see where that happens. No, I, you have to play it that way. The, the possessions are so few and far between, and, and Canada like plays so well. They're so disciplined. Um, which, which to me is like kind of ironic because a lot of those guys are used to playing in box across where you hold the ball for 30 seconds. So, um, for some reason, you know, they have the discipline to like really slow the ball down and kind of just kind of gnaw at you and wait for their opportunities. And they, they really do play it to a T. Um, and it's hard, it's, it's hard to play and, and shift your mindset. But I do think you know, that our team, especially over the course of that tournament was able to start to shift, but they're. It, it, it would have to be a constant reminder for me, at least, you know, to not, you know, try to sling the ball in um, and, and make some longer feed that like would wouldn't be the safest move or take a shot that like, you know, maybe could get saved. Whereas like, you know, in in the world games, like you should be taking a shot from eight yards and in. And if you don't have it, like you should probably move it on and try again later. <laughs> yeah, it's just totally yep. different. It's totally different. Do you, do you, uh, was there ever a point in your career where, uh, because of that high risk, high reward style of play, which I can relate to, if you start off poorly or, uh, have a series of plays where they haven't connected, do you feel the gravity pulling you back to being more conservative as a player? And if so, how do you, you know, keep the confidence to continue to do that higher risk, high reward, which makes you unique? Yeah, no, it's, it's a good question. So uh, it, it, I've, I've gotten way more frustrated with, uh, you know, if I'm shooting the ball poorly than, you know, if I'm like turning the ball over a lot, like, I, I think I've put so much time into passing the ball and, you know, evaluating kind of risk when passing the ball, um, that I, I don't think I've had too many, games where it's been like, okay, like stop doing that. <laughs> like you're, you're, yeah. you're screwing everything up. Um, so I think I've been pretty lucky with that, but, uh, you know, if I'm taking a lot of shots and, and they're just not falling, like it becomes more of like a, like, Hey, like give the ball to somebody else who will put it in the net. Like, it, you know, it's not, it's not so much like frustration with myself for not being prepared. It's more so just like, 
you know, the rest of the team like probably thinks like <laughs> you're an idiot and like but they don't. you're ruining the they game for them. Don't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's where my head goes more so than like being, you know, taking too many risks passing the ball it's more of like if i'm shooting it poorly i'm like oh my gosh like i don't want to blow this for the team like that's when i start to second guess myself more so than like a risky pass or like an underhand something would you would you say that you're really hard on yourself i think i used to be way too hard on myself to the point you know like we talked about it before like i just had very high aspirations and like you know was pretty aware that like I was, you know, I, I was at school to play lacrosse. Like I felt that weight. Like I was supposed to be the guy on our team. Like you mentioned the playoff thing. Um, like I, you know, I did put that stuff on my shoulders and some, it's something coach Bates, you know, ironically, like he would say like Atlas, like that's the guy with yeah, the, yeah. the world on his shoulders. Like you, he's like, you gotta, you gotta get rid of that. Like you have to find ways, um, you know, to kind of alleviate that stress. Otherwise you're going to drive yourself nuts. Um, you know, and, and I know that you're, you know, you're into the sports psychology world and, you know, well-read and all that stuff. And, um, you know, I think, and I think we've talked about mind gym before, um, Gary Mack book. Um, and the way they put it is just like, you kind of have to have a refined indifference, um, when it comes to your gameplay. Um, so I, I've never had an issue with not caring, and, you know, I've always cared too much. So it's, it, it's shifted from like, um, you know, being really frustrated to like, Hey, like at the end of the day, whatever. And I always, my thing is like, what's going on the next day, like the next morning. So if I'm playing, you know, against you guys in, um, the championship series this summer and, you know, I, I stink and like, I'm terrible. Like I know the next day, like I'm going to wake up, you know, in our, in my room, I'll probably go for a walk, do some stretching, whether I finish the the rest of this game with five goals or I turn the ball over five more times, like the world's going to like, things are going to be fine and you'll have an opportunity to do this again at some point. Um, so I think like that realization was, was helpful for me because I, you know, before that it was like every mistake just feels like it's the end of the world because of, I've been working for this my whole life. Like I've had my dad, I've had every lacrosse advantage ever. Like I have to like be executing everything. Otherwise it's like, how could I not do this? So it's very easy to get caught up in that. And I think as I've gotten older and I think it's part of just maturing, um, I've been able to kind of hone in on how to kind of react to um, mistakes far from perfect, but I think in a much better spot. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right out of the, the stoicism mindset. Um, but to give you even further credit is it's also opposite. That mindset is opposite of what we're beat over the head with at a very early age in sports is that this could be your last game. This could be your last play. I mean, how many times have we all heard that? Like play this as if it's your last and you're on the other side telling me a way that I calm myself down is I know that there's going to be another game. And so I, I just think, I mean, that that's, that's obviously an incredible mindset that you have. It's, it's very healthy. Uh, there certainly is always a risk in life that we could be playing in our last game. We could be taking on our last breath. Um, but 
I, I think in sport, a, a lot like other industries, we are reminded of of kind of the the, the patternized norms of of motivation. And in the case of of sport, being really hard on yourself and holding ourselves to the highest standards that often are unachievable, and it just puts you in a downward spiral. Um, and that was that was really hard on me. And I I, I remember having those conversations with you, even uh, in the World Championships. And so obviously for those that um, we're, we're under a rock. Tom had the last second goal, uh, literally the last second of the world championship game. And there were discrepancies around, I think we got like three shots off in the last six seconds. But I remember the biggest discrepancy was game clock on field <coughs> to network clock. And because the games were in Israel, what people don't realize is that there was a there was a lot of remote production happening, and the game clock, as we know now as operators of the PLL, that you see on field, that's the clock that you play against as a player. That's the that's the on field clock. Think about when the refs they step on the field at the final ten seconds of the penalty. The clock is on the field, and the tricky thing when it comes to production of sports is that you either have to wire in to the in stadium clock. Um, if you're producing the game on ESPN or NBC, or you have your team in their LEP department that are doing their best to match the game clock in stadium. And it's usually the latter. Now, the crazy part was in lacrosse, especially in the last minute, with the ball going out of bounds, the refs are keeping the clock on the field because it hits the end line and it continues to carry. So the game speed on the television visually of the clock, it stops and it lags. So as I was going back and looking through our social, when all was said and done, it was like, well, what's going on? The, the game clock on ESPN is moving, then it's resetting. But if you look at the game clock on the field, it was consistent. Um, anyway, the short of it is we got a couple of shots off, then Rob picked it up and just gunned it to you on a cut, and, and you buried it. And it was very instinctual play. Um, but just tell us about that, those last 10 seconds. What were you thinking? Was it, was it all on instinct? Did you feel the drama? go so I, I don't know if you did this on purpose um but it directly relates to your last question so um you know you referenced those couple shots in the last few seconds like i had one of them and i caught it from eight i kind of i wish i hit it <laughs> so there would be no discrepancy. i had the other shot <laughs> <laughs> yeah you did yeah. i wish we just canned them so there'd be no uh problems but i i i I think you took the first one and then I took the, the second and then the final one. But, um, you know, I caught the ball at seven yards. I could not believe how open I was and I shanked the shot. Like, so I think in the past, right, if you rewind, um, you know, a couple of years, like if that's me, I'm, I would be so beside myself and so frustrated and so upset that I, I probably would have like went and set a pick for somebody, you know, and, and like go try to get them open. But um, and I think this is like a, a credit to our team and coach Janowski, like just beating us over the head with like, Hey, next play, like whatever, like, ah, oh, it's cool. Like that whole kind of attitude, I think like, I didn't think much of anything. I was just like, okay, like, you know, I, none of that crossed my mind. Um, and I just saw Rob pick up the ball and we kind of like looked at each other and I saw Ned was kind of in a spot where he could set a pick and, it, it, it happened like so fast and so slow at the same time where like, I, I didn't even feel like I was in my body. <laughs> you know, I felt like I was yeah. watching it happen. And sure enough, like the C's part and the ball is coming right to my stick. 
And next thing I know, like we're celebrating in the corner. So like, I, I didn't think, I didn't think like, Oh, I'm going to fake it here and try to put it around Dylan Ward. Cause he plays a high, like nothing. There was no thinking involved. Um, yeah. So it, I mean, it was a crazy experience. Like at the end of the day, I, I caught the ball from one yard away and just dumped it in the net. So um, well, you can, you can, you can save the humility for, for another podcast, not, not for this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I also, I, the, what I should have said too, is I appreciate you giving the, uh, explanation of like the, the time discrepancy is from broadcast to ref to on yeah. field. Cause I've ne- I've never given it, given it a second of thought. Like it's in my mind, like it's over. Like we played, I saw, you know, there was a clock behind yeah. the the goal and just, I just played and like, well, it was actually so clean on field in the, in the stadium clock that the refs didn't even have to deliberate. And, and yeah. the deliberation is, is really common under the, the last minute or so when balls are going out of bounds. And so be, it was actually very clean in the stadium. And we were all surprised an hour afterward when we were reading social. Um, but anyway, uh, even going further back to, to an earlier topic we were discussing, you, you, you in theory should have cut left-handed. <laughs> yeah, you I should I mean? have, and, and I I did um, earlier in that quarter, and, and I blew that shot too. <laughs> you know, like I caught, like, you know, I caught it right in the same spot, lefty, and like I, I don't even remember what happened. Um, but like, it, it, you know, that was like kind of a box influence, right? So we talked right. about box before again. So I just caught with my right hand and. Um, you know, I guess that's the one thing that went through my head. I was like, don't cut with your left hand because you're going to drop right. the ball again. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I cut with my right hand to just kind of make sure. And, and I actually, you know, I think you think this way too. Like, and we talked about it before about being two handed. Like I, I'm definitely a better cutter with my right hand and, and yeah. can kind of make decisions quickly in a tight space with my right hand much better than my left. Um, so I think that was half instinctual and half just like rem- remembering that like I probably should have had the game winning goal <laughs> eight minutes before <laughs> left handed. <laughs> well, it was so good either way. Um, what was your? Uh, w- I mean, we'll call that our favorite part of of the championships. I, I remember post game being a blast and spending time with your folks, and then you know my folks were there. Everyone's. Uh, families were there and it was uh, during the Sabbath on a Sunday. So the whole city was shut down and we found an Irish bar that opened up for us and we all just partied for like six hours and uh, we were dancing and drinking and celebrating, playing loud music. Uh, And I remember sitting down with you um, on a bench and it was like an indoor outdoor space, but most of us were outdoors. And we were just, uh, I was trying to be as like present as possible in that moment, having, you know, been a part of a U.S. winning team eight years prior than a losing team. And just knowing the margin is so fucking thin. And, uh, and you just, you know, going back to whether it's, you know, the Princeton team your senior year that if a goal or two went in your direction and you make the playoffs, you could have won a championship that year. Uh, limping into the playoffs. I mean, we won a championship limping into the playoffs. And uh, and then even as a favorite, you know, with USA, you know, you, ball goes out in one direction, you know, call goes in the other way, or ground ball gets picked up, and then all of a sudden Canada wins. And that's probably the most difficult thing to process as athletes in sports, especially at the highest level, is that the margin's just way too narrow. Yeah, and I think because of that, and, and like, for a while I rolled my eyes at the whole concept, but because of that, like, 
and, and I feel this way in box across too. Um, you know, it's so much like the process o- over the end product, like really is like so important because, um, to your point, like if that ball goes an inch higher, I, I miss the ball or like it's three seconds later, let's say, and we go to overtime and like Canada wins, like how much different was 99.9% of that experience. Um, so, you know, obviously you always want to win, like we're going to compete to win and it's going to suck if you don't. Um, but I do think, you know, winning obviously like <laughs> makes it so much better, but like that whole experience is so crazy because it's multi-year, um, it is a million different, it's guys coming from a hundred different scenarios and different teams all coming together, you know, going to the other side of the world, living in the butts for yeah. two weeks, <laughs> you know, and, and, and playing in the, in these crazy games. So, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to discount like how cool it is to win games and whatnot, but like, you know, at the end of the day, like you have to be present to your point and, and like really like live, you know, in what you're experiencing. And it's not that easy, I don't think. Um, but right. it's certainly something that I've tried to do, but I remember that day, you know, Really, like I, I remember more about, which is ironic because I probably shouldn't, you know, more about that after party than the yeah. game itself. Um, you know, it, it was just Were such you not a drinking? cool. No, well, I, that's what I mean. Like, I, I definitely wasn't in the condition to like be to recall anything um, because you're also like the, the other thing no one talks about is because of we we're staying on the kibbutz. And it was the holy day, like the breakfast was, was dog shit that day. Yeah, no, like we, and the game, and the game was at 10 a.m. The game was yeah, at 10 a.m. Like, where were we up at we 4 were, o'clock? Yeah, we, were, we were up at 6 in the morning. Like nobody could really sleep the night before. It's like the biggest game ever. We're up at 6 a.m. and we have like coffee and like some toast for breakfast. Yeah, yeah we're um, at the stadium at 8 a.m. And then we're at the stadium, crazy. like no one, no one is like having their protein shake and lunch after the world championship. So we're like, just immediately start drinking. <laughs> and so you're like right. kind of in a daze <laughs> the whole day. Um, but I do remember that whole thing because just because like everyone's parents were there, it was just us. Like I just, uh, you know, it's hard not to think back for me, you know, my whole family was there. So my sister, my mom and my dad, mm. you know, it was hard not to just like take a second and be like, like, holy shit, like we're in Israel with my mom and dad uh, and my sister who like my whole life like took me to all these practices. My dad like dedicated his whole life to, to me and, and my sister and my mom did too. And then, you know, we were like at this like amazing moment, like everyone's got all their like gear on and like their reactions, their, my parents, like two separate reactions are just so in line with like who they are. My dad was just like like so like emotional about it and like man this was so cool like all you've like ever sacrificed all this stuff like we're finally here and and my mom was just like yeah this is this is this is unreal like this irish bar is sick (laughs) so it just like it was a cool like mix and just to kind of take a second be like wow like you know some of these guys that i'm playing with like yourself included were like guys that you know i i really looked up to and you know i got to be part of this whole thing and then my parents were here we're in israel i haven't eaten anything i'm hammered <laughs> like it was just like a crazy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a crazy yeah. couple the, uh, hours the the downside about playing the game at 10 a.m. and then winning at noon and beginning drinking right around 12:30 and taking us through is that you have these thoughts around celebrating a championship and typically your games are at night or in the late afternoon 
at the earliest, and you know, you're going through the night. I, if I remember right, it was right around 10 o'clock. Everyone was pretty much done. And I remember thinking, like, a few of us went to the sand and, like, you know, brought some beers out and we were, and we were just reminiscing. But it was like, all right, this thing needs to get shut down. Uh, so it was, like, kind of an anticlimactic um, experience because the whole city was shut down. But we extended it through those few days. Did you hop on a flight the next day? I hopped on a flight, uh, like, the first one where everybody went out and I played a game four days later in MLL. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was a quick turnaround. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a quick turnaround, but, um, yeah. I mean, uh, my, my knee like finally gave out and I, I remember like I was barely getting by in the world games and, uh, I ended up, that was the last game I played that summer and got surgery in the fall. Yeah. We were both, um, we were both spending lots of hours on the training tables. Yeah, in Israel, no, that, was, that was nuts. I remember, I remember talking with T about that and him being like, "Jesus Christ!" Like looking at our midfield and and me and you were like, uh, "I think you played the whole tournament." I I missed three to four games because of my back. Yeah, um, but uh, it was uh, that was tough. And you've gone through a lot of injuries. In I have in, in recent years. Yeah, I mean, like I think I missed one game in college. Um, I missed. I broke my hand um, in, I think, a playoff game in MLL my rookie season. So I missed, like, the next game. So I missed one game then. Um, hurt my knee in box a couple of years ago. Uh, ended up coming back. That was the year of the of the World Games, which was, you know, scary. Um, and then re-aggravated it early in MLL in May. So I was in a really tough spot with that and uh, got by – you know, that my knee's been fine since. And then, um, you know, felt like I got hit by a truck this past, uh, summer in, in, uh, Columbus when, yeah, when Apple, uh, hit me in the shoulder, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I missed, I missed some, some box games and obviously missed the rest of that game in the playoffs with the archers, which is a bummer, but yeah, trying to be I, healthy I, now. Like, like you, I, I've, uh, I've picked up a lot from playing NLL and it, it really helped me sharpen my, my skill. Uh, but I remember my first experiences in, in NLL and some of these venues carpets are like that there's like mines that are set up throughout the, the floor and like the carpets kind of like half rolled up in some areas and in some, some venues it's beautiful, it's pristine, but in others I would be like, Jesus Christ, there's a pothole over here. If I step in it, I'm going to lose my entire left limb. And uh, <laughs> so I don't know, like, when you first aggravated your knee, um, if it was by, like, contact or what. But and, and I don't even know the state of the floors now. But um, I, it just that just dawned on me. Yeah. No, I mean, they vary, to your point. I mean, they're they're all, like, playable and fine. Like, mine, I was just in a real... Uh, I, I kind of... Not really. I mean, you see them like they hide in the the ad logos too. That's where like they're really bad. Um, but my mine was just kind of a freak thing. Like I I kind of got pushed from behind and the guy fell on my foot and then I got hit the opposite direction. So oh. the injury I had like kind of happens uh, for people who get in car accidents. So I was in a similar position where my knee was bent. It was kind of like um, like anchored down and then I was hit and that's how like the ligament tour um yeah. mm -hmm. which was no fun but 
Yeah. Well, we, uh, well, I want to shift and talk a little bit about PLL. Uh, while I have you, we could talk for hours. Um, but <laughs> we haven't gotten, we haven't talked about it once. No. <laughs> so, so, um, so we were talking about world championships. So good, a good sequitur is, is that like, you know, seven games in nine days is world championship. We'll likely be playing seven and 16 or, or two teams will be at a minimum. And, um, and, uh, so the preparation is similar. It's, it's a bit like a world championship, world cup, March madness, um, and the design of that uh, was based off of obviously the times that, that we still f- find ourselves in having this conversation over a laptop and a couple of mics. Uh, but prior to even the, the, the reformatting, we were building the PLL from scratch. And what I tell people about what Tom Schreiber did with us outside of you know the first calls and, and sharing the vision with you was you're, you're basically our resident lacrosse expert. And like everything from rules to uh, team formation strategies to uh, you know shot clock debates, um, even up in during training camp, it's like what well, what does Tom think? And uh, and then obvi- and then on the op side, your your project base, you do a lot of special projects from um, you know helping on site to uh, exploring ways that our, our fans are going to have an experience to our players and then even you know, figuring out practice sites for six teams, now soon to be seven in one location where it was kind of like cart before the horse for us. Hey, this tour-based model makes a ton of sense. Oh, shit, when we get there, where the fuck are the teams going to practice? So so it's, it's, uh, it's been fun building this and that hopefully that, that does a, a little bit of justice in, in all the work that you've been doing. Um, but yeah, why don't we just start with the first conversation? So the very first one between us. Yeah. Well, what, what's legal and what's, are there any legal implications? (laughs) (laughs) So like, let's not like, you know, obviously the, the million dollars that I offered you in cash, uh, we can't talk about that, but the, (laughs) the, uh, the, the actual thought around, okay. Um, I'm going to be a part of this and I'm going to help build it. Uh, what do I think the sport needs? Like, how are you processing that? Yeah. I, I mean, so, so you touched on a couple of the things that I I've like been lucky enough to be you know exposed to through this whole experience. And like the way I kind of break this down is, you know, it ties into the, the couple points that I've, I've kind of hammered home at this point. It's just that like, I'm a lacrosse rat and I love it. I love the game. I've been around it my whole life. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, watching you and Kyle you know, w- was a huge part of kind of my development. So at the end of the day, I had the opportunity to um, have a small role in building a new professional lacrosse league, you know, with two guys that, you know, I really, really looked up to and, and, and you know, would have the opportunity to learn from, you know, because this, you know, initially going back to that you know, first conversation, like this was like a, a pitch deck. Um, yeah. you know, and, and my, from my vantage point, it's, it's been crazy to see this because, um, you know, to your point, like I was brought in because of like my lacrosse knowledge and like kind of role within the sport and have been exposed to a lot of different things, but like I've gotten to see this, um, from beginning to now and, and, you know, hopefully beyond. And, uh, it, it's been crazy. And, and all I knew is I, I wanted to play at the highest level and, and take lacrosse to, um, 
you know, and, and you know, hopefully see lacrosse grow and, and you know do my part in that. You know, and and that applies to a million different things, whether that's you know coaching kids to you know posting like a wall ball video to like contributing to hopefully you know taking this sport you know to the next level. And I think you know all like you've accomplished and and the rest of the company has accomplished in the last few years has been something uh, to be proud of. So um, I just knew I wanted to play it at, at the highest level and and you know, everything that you had to say, I knew would get all of the best players on board. So that's really at the end of the day, what kind of sold, um, the decision. And then on top of that, the opportunity to work alongside with, which was really just you, Mike, Kyle, and maybe Rob at the time. Um, it was, I remember the Brooklyn meeting That's what when I we saw about. the first couple of logos. Yeah. As we, uh, as we keep having this conversation, I I'm thinking about promos for this podcast and, and hopefully if not in this phone, in my older phone going through the camera roll, because we had a dinner at that pizza joint in Brooklyn. Yeah. Was it, uh, me, you, Cinny, Mike, Rob Sanzillo, maybe Eric Krasnew. Krasnew, yep. (laughs) Krasnew. And, uh, we were going through the league logos we were yeah. like building a sponsorship deck. We were talking about product. Product was the most important thing, and product is lacrosse. Um, and then we went and uh, ate pizzas, and um, and and then went back to work. Those and you would train in from Long Island, and you would sit yeah. at you, you. We would um, our first New York City office was actually bum space from not even from an investor from um, a venture, a sports venture investing group that uh, used to own Crossover. And when Crossover was purchased, they had extra space. So we were in, in a Crossover space. And, uh, and I remember you training in. And uh, guys, it felt like a, a decade ago. But um, one, of the, one of the questions, I, I guess, that comes out of it, and I was always, now I'm curious of how you've processed it since, but you play NLL, PLL, and work, um, and then you have your own training business, and you do a multitude of other things. Have you gotten? I know a pain point early on was managing your your travel and your schedule. Have you gotten better at time management and energy management? Yeah, I think so, and, and I think you know, like not to like discount like the carnage that coronavirus has taken on the world, but like for me, like in trying to kind of control you know, my reaction to it you know, I've really been able to like, like anyone else, like hone in on a million different habits and like really, you know, for lack of a better word, like get my shit together on a number of different fronts. See, you know, try to organize, you know, your time, your workouts, like how you can kind of react to, um, you know, kind of going digital with some, some of the coaching stuff and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, you, you touched on it before and I kind of said, um, touched on it a bit, but like, you know, just being a part of this, like, so you're getting like this startup experience where like, there's kind of very little structure, but like a ton of work to be done, um, to seeing this kind of evolve going from the crossover space, um, and moving to another office and then to another office and then where we are now. And like, to see this all grow, like it's been an incredible learning experience for me really just as a person and as a professional. So yeah, I, I think so. And then just the team that you guys have built, um, from, you know, I, I don't know how many employees we're up to now, but, you know, from when I started to where we are now, just the people that I've been around, um, yeah. you could probably name whoever 
you know, is responsible for the quote. Like you're kind of the result of however many people you spend the most time with. Like, you know, I, I'm in a pretty good position, you know, given the people that I'm able to work with on a daily basis now through, you know, Google Hangouts and Slack and email. But, you know, when I'm lucky enough to go into um, the office and hopefully when we will going forward, like it's just an incredible group of people to be around and then, you know, playing sports, as you know, too, like being around teammates. So it's a pretty interesting life that, um, you know, I do think that over time, like I've been able to hone in on it a bit more and, and really, you know, organize time and, and grow in that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you've been leading a project that we'll be unveiling in the coming months too. It's going to be really awesome. Um, surrounding yourself with, with people, uh, that you aspire to be like, uh, it feels like the archers have a lot of the, the same personality and, uh, and guys that you've played with in the past, but even the number one pick that you guys went with, Grant Amon, had a lot of positive things to say about you. Who the fuck doesn't? Um, and, uh, and in particular was playing a two-man game with you. How do you think about Grant? We'll get, we'll get it a little bit into archers. How do you think about Grant and how he'll fit, fit into your system? Um, and then any other comments on your team and the makeup? Yeah. So we were actually, you know, Harry and I were like, one of the things we're doing today was to present kind of on how teams communicate. And like a big part of that message was like how these teams were formed. And then, you know, I think it was March 4th of 2019, you know, via Bitmoji release. Um, yeah. <laughs> we all found out what teams we were on and then training camp was May 17th. So we had like a, a two and a half month period. And then it, a week after training camp, we were playing a game. So we had to become a team really quickly. And like, I think like the bulk of our team, you know, there, there were kind of some past like pro league affiliations, but it was really just kind of, you know, a group of friends, um, you know, that you know, played in Hawaii together and like, you know, we're able to rally around that and create a culture. And I think like being around Marcus and being around Scott Ratliff, guys who think a lot about culture and leadership, um, and, and are really good at articulating, you know, their thoughts and how to distribute it, you know, and I think like, I'd like to think that I'm pretty interested in that stuff too, and try to learn from those guys and try to be a part of, you know, that culture and try to lead that culture. And I think coach Bates is also a lot like that. So, um, you know, we've been able to kind of build that side of things and, and, and you know, to your initial point, like, it's just been, it's a really good group to be a part of, and it's been really, um, fun. And then I think we have all the pieces we need. And then, you know, adding Grant's really exciting. You know, I think he, um, is an incredible player, like his vision, like some of the looks that he makes are, are unbelievable. And like his, his speed, his quickness, he's a, he's a very complete player. And like, you know, I think he, he certainly will will have a huge role with us and, and I couldn't be more excited. You know, I saw, you know, Kyle Burnlaw's, thing today about the archers like i'm not trying to hear any of that like we you know we were five and five last year um yeah and we have a lot to prove so I, i'm not and burn said what you're best on paper the team's the best it, on paper yeah I think, like well he i think the way the you question think that's was kind of like a backhand comment too hey these guys are the best on paper but you know you know what, i i'm a doing? i'm a regular unbuckled podcast listener paul and i know <laughs> that you try to stir it up so i'm i'm um not going to uh, take the bait there. Um, and, and I think the way the question was phrased, like, you know, I think it was along the lines of like, we added grant, like the archers, like, you know, have this, this great attack and like, we'll, you know, who do you think, you know, will 
you know, be really good this year or something. And, and I think Kyle went that direction because he was kind of uh, fed that answer from Lisa and Emma. So I'm going to put it on them um, or whoever. An- I, I looked at it quickly and I was just like, oh, no, like I'm not trying to like have this go around. I looked at, the, it. Uh, I looked at it the, the way, it, way it was written and the way it was said. You know, the archers are, are yeah. good on paper. I don't like I, it. When I mean, people say I'm good on paper. Um, I, I think Kyle Burmore's <laughs> comments were meant in the right way, but I don't want the archers having some sort of target on their back. And I know I'm not worried about our team, like thinking like all of a sudden, like we're the favorites and like, we're this awesome team. Like, yes, like Grant Amant is a ridiculous player and I think we'll fit in super well with our team. I love every piece of our team, but like, yeah, it doesn't mean a thing until we go and do it. So um, yeah. my official stance on this is Kyle Burnmore is a fantastic person, a lacrosse oh my God. savant, We're gonna edit this part out. Um, a mastermind. <laughs> okay. um, and uh, I love the archers, but we ain't shit. <laughs> like that's my official stance. <laughs> so, so you, you, uh, you were, you were speaking as part of a, uh, a campaign that we were running around advice to rookies. And you said confidence is the most important thing. Um, does that change a little bit with Grant? Like if you give him a couple of words of advice, it could be one, it could be three things. Have you thought about that already? Yeah. And, and, and we've talked, um, a few times really since he's, um, been drafted and, and all that. And I, and I think it, it that, that kind of is the message, right? Like go do what you do. Like it, it's a different level and it is a big jump. And like, he understands that, like he's got, um, such an expansive skill set. Like he's so dedicated to this. He wants to be great, which is such an awesome trait to have. Like yeah. you would think that people just have that, but um, I, I think it's, it, it's kind of rare actually. And you could tell that like he wants it right away, which is, which is awesome. So I, I think it's because there's no training camp because we're going right into this thing, the message for me, and, and, you know, we've kind of talked about this, um, you know, one-on-one grant and I, it's just like, Hey, go do your thing. Like the ball's going to be in your stick. Like you're going to have a big role here. So get used to that. And, um, you know, listen to coach, like we play offense, you know, a certain way. And, um, I know they've already connected. I know Will and Marcus have already shared a bunch of film with them. And, um, you know, we're going to do that with our entire offense for the next few months, really. Um, again, that's kind of what Kyle and I were going to present on today with the, uh, team meeting was just the challenge of this thing. Like, how can you get the most out of these next two months, despite not seeing each other? And I think it's just constant communication, film, sharing ideas and, and the quicker you can get guys being themselves and being really vulnerable, you know, a rookie, especially like, I, I, like the better, right? Like that guy's got to be, he's grand has to feel comfortable as soon as possible. And I think he's already taken a lot of steps. Like he he's been on the phone with us. Like he's super eager to learn. He's so excited to be part of this. And like, you know, I think our team feels the same way about him. So we're stoked and, and you know, I'm sure these next two months are going to feel like an eternity because everyone's so excited to play. Yeah. Yeah. He's a killer. That that's, that's a big takeaway for me too. The, uh, the rarity of, of wanting to be great and then, you know, doing everything within your power to accomplish that. I was, I've been thinking a lot about the MJ doc and the three things that uh, jump out of me. This is, is very macro uh, level diagnostic, but it's, it's to be like this this generational figure in a sport and i think mj is the greatest ever in any sport and if you just 
and it's opinion-based, but his stats are at the top. But if you look at six championships, appearances, six championship rings, and then six championship MVPs, it's like a goddamn cheat code. And, and different than for every Michael Jordan, there's a Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan was not Michael Jordan. Um, and Michael Jordan's energy expenditure to accomplish what he did was just a massive sacrifice on what he had a, a really long and successful career. But, you know, I, I, I believe it when you watch it. It was like even his sixth title, his fifth and sixth title, he grinded because of everything he put into it. So the three things, Michael Jordan, greatest kind of athletes in their respective sports, there's innate blessings around their physical and athleticism got to have that. And I think Michael Jordan is one of the greatest athletes ever. I mean, they were talking about his running his 4-3-40, and he never even trained a 40. Um, the second is work ethic. And that's what you're referencing around Grant. And you had that. And, and like work ethic to the nth degree. So beyond, like, it's not like one of the hardest workers. It's the hardest worker. Um, and then the third is this, uh, this, I don't really know how to describe it outside of cutthroat or killer mentality, but it's a psychology. And that psychology has to be baked in resilience, but it has to be high demand. Uh, it has to be relentless. And Michael had that beyond any other athlete. Probably the closest might be Kobe. And then, you know, I, I was not certainly uh, alive during the era of Muhammad Ali, but if you think about other killers, I mean, Floyd Mayweather has that. Uh, I think a bit in him, even in a modern era, which was more difficult to upkeep than uh, kind of MJ's or Muhammad Ali's eras of uh, of maybe less attention and less peer pressure um, than I think what athletes have in sport. But those are the three things, and I think for Grant, we'll find out more about the third. Uh, I think he's a terrific athlete, um, but you know he's got the work ethic. So I, I look at those three things and like, are you the best at them? And then the endurance aspect of, of being able to apply that. And if you have that, then he could be one of the greatest to play the game. And that's, you know, I don't give a fuck about making that call now because there's still so much, so much that he has to do. But like be in the conversation, he's got, you know, uh, I think he's not the most athletic player to have played the position, but he's certainly athletic enough. He's got this ridiculous work ethic and we'll find out about his mindset. So that's my take on Grant. Yeah. No, I mean, I think like to this point, like he, he checks a lot of great boxes and, and I couldn't be more excited to, to play with him. And, and like, I, I appreciate yeah. the way he plays the game too. You know, I think, you know, I, I, I catch some flack from people from time to time about like kind of being you know, a sidearm guy and, and like skipping the ball and stuff. And like, you know, Grant you know, does that as well as anyone I've ever seen. Um, yeah. so I'm excited to, to kind of be on the receiving end of some of those passes and, and to play with him. Like he's, he's, he's been unbelievable really the last two years. And I think that killer instinct is something that, you know, you can kind of see on the field, but to hear it, um, over the phone and to, you know, kind of feel that on a daily basis now that, you know, this is official and he's with us. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. And definitely, he's definitely on the right track. That's for sure. Have I ever told you my take on overhand sidearm underhand? Or I know we've done some uh, players tours together, but I don't always pull it out. Um, but it's it's basically my feeling is is it comes down to technique. But if you have if technique is equal, overhand, sidearm, underhand, 
then the success rate should be the same. Like, because your overhand coming over the top, north to south, you have the margin for error to throw it sky high into the clouds or right into the dirt at your feet. And ideally, you want to throw it straight if you're passing or shooting at a target in front of you. Sidearm, if you're throwing it with the right technique on a linear plane that's parallel to the ground, you can miss the ball right or left, but if the technique's right, you're still shooting central. And the same thing with underhand, south to north. Now, the technique often starts with wavered shoulders when it comes to sidearm and underhand, but my feeling is that the reason why overhand, if you look at the statistics, is more consistent is that's the way that we're taught to play first, and it's the repetitions that we practice the most. So my theory has always been, as I you know, spent a lot of time working on my sidearm and underhand, and as they, those in some cases have certainly gotten equal, and I would actually say I'm more confident in some areas, sidearm and underhand than I am. Overhand is like repetition and technique, but in theory, if the technique's right, the, the accuracy and the likelihood of accuracy should be the same. Do you think differently? Or does that at least somewhat land? No, I, I, yeah, yeah, no, it does. And, and on, you know, if, if you kind of continue to break it down, like there are times where like your angle improves if you drop your stick. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think like part of, and, and I'm sure you adjusted to this through box lacrosse too, is you you just become so used to having your the ball in your inside hand um, and increasing your angle there. Like I'm very rarely taking a down the alley shot. You know, in, in the PLL because the goalies are too good. Um, now, that doesn't mean that a middle school player or a high school player or even a college player should avoid that, but you know, it, it goes back to your point around Will Manny adjusting his game before. Like, it, This isn't necessarily a personnel-driven change, but it's just like the goalies are too good to like consistently score you know, on the run down the alley. So I try to get to the inside so I can go either way like um, with my shots. So... You know, I think going back to the sidearm overhand, you know, I, I do think like if you can rep it and you're really comfortable and, you know, you're not going to be a liability, th then do it, you know, the right way. And I think you should probably start with the overhand when you're young, you know, to, to you know, get that down. But then as you get older and really get obsessed with the game, and I think that's really the guys that should explore like, what, how they should release the ball. If you're obsessed with the cross and you want to be great, like you do have to rep it and be comfortable and kind of dissect like when a sidearm pass or a sidearm shot is the right shot and when you're comfortable with it. But your math checks out to me, you know, like the, the different planes and like yeah. if you're executing the right way, then you're not more at risk here, here or, or underhand. Yeah. And so the, they're all good points. So the part that I didn't add was that it's, it's based off of situation. So my, my point to kids is that if you develop all three angles and continue to develop them well, that you can then call on whichever angle is best for that moment. And so the bid isn't right. to say only play sidearm or only play underhand, but when right. sidearm makes sense, you can call on that and not fear someone saying, oh, they, they missed that because he threw it sidearm. And I think that's where it gets thrown around and it bothers me is when someone's so quick to say he shot at sidearm. Where we, do, do we tally or do we get does, – does someone miss a shot? We miss a shitload of overhand shots. I miss that going back to the USA. My, my 
third to last shot of the game, I shot it overhand. And I, when I watched the film back, I'm like, I should have <laughs> fucking shot that thing sidearm. And I shot it overhand, and people don't go, oh, he shot it overhand. Look at him. Why did he shoot it overhand? <laughs> if we got those for as many times as we hear him for sidearm or underhand. Uh, anyway. Um, I agree, though. I, I hadn't thought about, from a starting perspective, the ball just stays in the stick if you think about the physics of the stick with an overhand pass and versus getting kids to start sidearm. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it, it helps to teach like getting your hands back um, and like the, the proper fundamental. And, it, and like, I think once you have that down, I think you can start to expand your game. And I think that's how I kind of approach it still to this day, like just adding new layers. Right. So I think like the overhand thing is probably the right starting point. Um, and then, you know, adding different layers. So releasing it from different spots, being two handed, being a feeder, being a shooter, being able to speed dodge, be a physical dodger, a split dodger, kind of like a, a butt dodger, being comfortable behind the goal line, the wings up top, like the more you can kind of expand your game, particularly as an offensive player. I think that's kind of um, the approach. And I think that would be, you know, that would kind of apply to the whole, you know, plane of, uh, of release point uh, conversation. There you go. Well, Tom, we're, uh, we're way over, um, but I'm, I'm glad we are. I was hoping I would be able to talk to you for two hours. I could talk to you for six hours. I wish we could create more time in our, our calendar to catch up, but um, I don't know that this was on the record when we started, but we were going to record in person, and I was always looking forward to like sitting down with you in a studio and, uh, and doing this and we'll have to, we'll do a second episode when we can actually do that. But your flight was booked to come to LA the third week of March. And then obviously March 11th hit and, uh, and we've been looking at holding off and we just reached a place where we are like, let's, let's get this thing on the book. So thanks for joining finally. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Looking forward to doing it in person too. And I think it'll increase the likelihood of you wearing a shirt the entire podcast. So looking well, forward I, to the next one. It was about 90%. Person. 90% of the podcast <laughs> I had a shirt on. My, my well, chest hair kind of looks up. like your beard hair, to be honest. <laughs> I think it's time to end the podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Ticketmaster. <laughs> All right, that's it. Again, I could have gone for another hour. I'm sure Tom could have as well. He's such an interesting cat. And I just sensed that at some point you have to hit pause or in this case, stop on the recording device. And our next time together in person, we'll pick up where we left off. But hope you enjoyed that conversation between myself and Tom. One of many that we, uh, that we have now finally brought to light in a public forum but Tom is a, a special person for me to have built a relationship with and obviously an incredible piece of, uh, of the PLL, an incredible player uh, for lacrosse, and he'll continue to uh, give back to the sport for years to come, not just on field but off of it. So I'm excited to continue to watch that and keep tabs on Tom. And um, for all of you that stuck around, thank you. Go Atlas, Archer's uh, best on paper. But remember, uh, that doesn't mean anything. So whether Tom likes to admit it or not, they're considered the best on paper. And thanks again to Ticketmaster and for all of you for listening. So subscribe, leave a review in the form of a comment, maybe what you thought about this episode of Tom's, and we'll jump in and, and respond either there or on Twitter. But thank you again. We'll talk to you very soon. Stay healthy. Ooh.